I'm Chanae Ogwumike. I'm Lisa Leslie, and we're very excited to tell you about our new podcast with Blue Wire, Front and Center. Lisa and I are breaking down what's going on in our lives, in the world, and keeping it 100. We're also learning from amazing guests as well, like Emmanuel Acho. People that show love to me, I forever got their back. Vivica A. Fox. If the foundation isn't right, then the rest of it's going to go wrong from there. And more. Subscribe to Front and Center today. Welcome back to the Limited Upside Podcast, back after a week hiatus. I'm Mike Prada. It is, I don't know what day it is. Uh, what day is it today? 28th, buddy. The, oh, that's Ben Epstein. And yeah. our guest today, uh, in true fashion for this podcast, when I was texting with him to try to organ, figure out a time to talk, he said, wait, what day is it today? And we were kind of talking about what when we were actually going to do this. So very fitting for this podcast. But we're very lucky to be joined by Seth Partnow of The Athletic, former director of – what was your title with Milwaukee? Director of – Basketball research. Basketball research with the Milwaukee Bucks, now writer for The Athletic, having just completed a massive project rank uh, – sorry, not ranking – Tearing <laughs> the NBA players into 125 words. And look, this is music to my ears because I hate ranking. Uh, Seth, how are you today? I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, some things have happened this morning in, in the old NBA world. Yes, we were going to talk exclusively about uh, these tiers. These we were going to talk a little bit about some sort of esoteric big picture things. But I'm very, I think it's very lucky that we have both of you today because within the last hour, Daryl Morey, has agreed to a five-year contract to be the Philadelphia 76ers uh, head executive. I don't know exactly what his title is. President, maybe? Executive vice president, whatever. President? Above Elton Brand. So he was out of the NBA for about two weeks. And I want to start with you, Ben, because I think I should just cede the floor to you as a Philadelphia 76ers (laughs) fan. And um, I mean, where is your head at right now? I'm just going to let it go from there. Where is your head at? Oh uh, wow! Um, well, obviously, when when Daryl left his uh, his his perch uh, with or unsanctimoniously with Houston, I, my thought was the last team in the world that he'd probably want to come work for would be another cantankerous ownership group like the Sixers. Um, I have as little faith as you know in our uh, decision makers as as most Sixers fans have been. Um, you know, inclined to fall into this bucket of like, well, Harris is a boob and you know, Ruben's a boob and these guys are going to make the worst possible decisions to keep as much power. And it, and it was shaking out like that, right? The entire offseason for the Sixers was playing out prior to Doc signing as if keeping the rest of the bad voices in the room or the voices that got us here were going to stay. Um, and so I didn't necessarily think that Morey was going to end up, number one, working in the league this year, given that the offseason was going to be so short that he probably would have grand plans for anywhere that he went. And then he's, a, you know, he's not your, a normal player personnel executive. Like this is someone who comes in with his own philosophy, whether that's successful or not. We could debate that uh, over the last few years of decisions that he's made um, compared to maybe the first well, few years of decisions. Can we made. debate that? I don't know. I think it's been pretty uh, successful, but that's yeah. a well, separate conversation. S- s- no, no, no. I mean like success as in like what you would deem the Westbrook 
necessarily the last few moves he's made have been uh, you interesting mean the, you mean the fu move to tillman Fertitta yeah. on the way out yes uh, correct or the, or the move that was sort of uh, uh against medical advice perhaps <laughs> yeah some of the reporting for sure for sure and so like look i'm super excited i'm someone who wears sam hinky t-shirts still on most of our podcasts seth so you know like uh i'm still a, a big advocate of this sweet spot between information um i think using the term information is, is probably more palatable to the average sixers fan than using the word analytics because it's such a jaded stupid sports city um and so i'm someone who likes that i think the the relationship between doc and more is one i want to talk more with both of you about because as Mike, I think we were alluding to via text earlier, they worked together in Boston for a few years. Is that I had totally that forgotten about this like years ago. Right. Um, so, you know, it you, was a little different then. Yeah. Yeah, you're, yeah. But you're feeling excited. I'm feeling excited. Yeah, of okay. course I am, man. I mean, we went from, from a pretty stagnant place as a franchise to – uh, movers and shakers. Let's put it that way. Yeah. This is not going to be the same type of maybe add a shitty veteran contract off season. Uh, if anything, I'm very excited to see how Mori yeah. can, can play with the pieces the Sixers have to make them a better team because it is a very stagnant uh, roster from a contractual obligation standpoint. Now, Seth, you said, I think you said maybe a week ago or when it happened that you could see two possible scenarios for Daryl who obviously is the pioneer of the, or the popular pioneer, I guess is the right word of the analytics move in for lack of a better term. Uh, One of the pioneers. And you're obviously also one of the pioneers you had said, I think a week ago that it was either failure. He would be out of the league. So are you surprised that he's back? Uh, Surprised, but not shocked. Um, I, you know, I, I think I thought the most, the more likely scenario was, was, uh, perhaps you know, doing something else with with, it, with his life for a while. I mean, he'd been an NBA GM for 13 years, and and at a certain point, I imagine there's a, there's kind of a bit of sameness to that. And and you know, there's uh, I think you look at, for example, what Billy Bean is doing now, and I think that that I think there was I don't know if it was well founded, but there's definitely speculation. Hey, maybe Daryl could do something like that, but which would make sense given that you know he's someone who is who is interested always in kind of uh, broaching new fields and stuff like that but uh the, the the 76ers piece of it was more just the timing of his departure from Houston was a little bit weird so it was a little bit weird that and and no pun intended but there's no other way to say it that hey there's a little bit something a little bit inky here so maybe uh um you look at you look at what the other kind of spot is out there, and it just is like, huh? They, they they've kind of done some reshuffling, and it doesn't seem like they're done yet. So maybe. Um, so I'm not shocked, but I am. Uh, I would have thought it was more likely that it, to go the other way that that he was doing something else rather than basketball this year. I'm going to ask this question to you, Seth, in a bit of a loaded way on purpose because of sort of your commonality with the way Maury thinks proposed to think given like the cult of personality that has developed around Maury, I say develop because I, I never, I don't think he was always the, the sole person developing it. I think it's sort of evolved into something. He's become much more of a symbol than he really should be. I mean, it's more Michael Lewis than it is Darren Maury himself, I think. Right. Yeah. And it's, but given like whatever we want to describe that as someone who uh, is, I mean, very close to that sort of world. Do you, is it is it good that he's immediately right back in the league, or 
would have been better if from like sort of a more interesting if he had taken some time off and like let sort of what he represents sort of seep through the league in a different way like are you happy he's right back in the league um man that's i i hadn't even thought of it in those terms that's um, why i asked it in like sort of an interest in like a very weighted way like i i just think that like yeah, yeah he's gonna be what he's gonna be in philly i just think him yeah. as a person as symbols is still yeah. interesting i mean i am happy in so far as the the degree that that his departure from houston was taken as a repudiation of a certain mode of thought uh has been proven to be you know completely false um and you know that's i think that the degree to which like maury style thinking has pervaded the nba has always been a little bit overblown um, it's it's a little bit of kind of a moral panic, and it was it was uh, you know it was basically of of top execs in the league before today. It was basically uh, Monty McNair in Sacramento, who you would say is is fully of that kind of of school. And there's you know a couple others, maybe Sam Presti would be another one who who you would, you would say operates along similar lines, uh, but. Um, but so I am to that extent. I'm I'm glad to see that like there's the, an endorsement um, from from a franchise that is willing to spend money. That uh, this is this is a a possible uh, possibly um, uh, profitable way to go. Not not profitable in terms of like balance sheet, but in terms of putting a good basketball team on the floor. I wonder. Do you, I mean, Seth? Do you think that number one that it's um, intelligent the way the Sixers went about this offseason essentially going like some front office moves then coaching decision then president of essentially essentially basketball operations which would arguably be the you know the opposite of of the the uh the, the, the pathology of setting up um you know a, a front office and uh you know leadership team if you will like do you think any of this uh or this, like, what are your thoughts essentially on that order and the cadence of which they got to this I mean, if there's a word I would use to describe it all, it's reactive. And that's not really you, proactive is obviously the much better because you're, you're building towards the future. So you can't react. You can't react. You have to, you know, be, you know, predictive of what, of what's going to happen in the future. Now they may have ended up kind of falling backwards into a good spot, but I don't think the process for again, lack of a better term, was necessarily there to. I think it 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 was a bigger issue with the coaching hire than necessarily the 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 GM hire. Just I mean, in terms of like you know, you talk about best player available. I think uh, on the exec front, that's a clearer call than it would have been on the coaching front, where it's maybe a little bit more nebulous as to who the best candidate could be. And it could have easily been Doc through a full search. It's just like it, it being like a two-day process is not not optimal or ideal. And, and it kind of sounds yeah. like this Moore thing was similar in that, you know, the ownership pursued him, wined and dined him. They impressed He impressed them over a dinner. And like two weeks later, here we are. That was maybe a slightly longer version of how Doc Rivers became their coach. Um, and it... it this is like a classic uh, yo-yo effect 
uh, I think I jo- I tweeted about it, like in psychology, where you basically every single move you make is the complete opposite of the move you just made. And so the Sixers have basically been living the yo-yo effect for about seven years now. They go from hinky to basketball person and Jerry and the Colangelos. And then when that fails, they go to like someone who's never been a GM and Elton Brand. And then when that fails, they originally say, we need more basketball people. We can this analytics thing. And that was like what, what Elton Brand was talking about. And then suddenly the like kind of symbol of analytics movement for black of a better word is on the market. It's like, Oh, we're going to get him now. It's like there, it, all this makes me wonder. I mean, it is kind of funny, but also all this makes me wonder, and I think I'm curious to hear what you think about this set. It's like, is he in a good position to succeed? With there, There's two ways of thinking about that question. There's a good position from like a leadership standpoint, and then obviously the, the next step of that is a good position from what they have on their team right now and their salary situation and their two superstars and all of that. Is, this a, is he in position to be his best self? So there's several questions there. The first one, I think that um, based on my conversations with people, the, the the more basketball people involved was as much about getting kind of interference from the business side folks out of there as it was um, being directed internally towards the kind of the basketball decision making hierarchy, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it was I think it was interpreted more by. Um, people who are predisposed to be quote anti-analytics as a shot there, but I think it was more kind of hey money guys, let us run basketball kind of thing. Um, as far as um, in a position to succeed, oh, I mean a five-year contract gives you some runway. Five-year contract for for big money does you know that's a that's not something that you you know. However willing ownership is to spend, that's not something that you do lightly. Um, from a roster standpoint, um, I mean, this is something that it's it's you know it was been talked about since like Sam Hinkie was running the team. The hardest things to find are your kind of tentpole stars, and uh, maybe this is a good segue into into the tears bit. But the you know they don't have like that inner pantheon MVP year in year out guy, but they have two pretty good players who, you know, taken together, you know, are, are a good foundation to build a team. So you have that in place. They're kind of short on future assets and cap situation. But if there's one guy who is, who has shown his ability to kind of wriggle into and out of situations over his tenure, it's been Daryl. So, like, is the degree of difficulty high? Yeah, but he's willing to make moves that people will criticize at the time and call stupid and not care because that's the way he's operated the whole time. So I think that the field is less constrained for him than it would be for someone who is more um, cognizant and and uh, beholden to the court of league opinion. Do we think he's going to move one of those two stars? I guess it's so early to say, but or is it, or is it more about the temple thing where his philosophy is you get the stars even if they don't fit perfectly well, and the, your job then is to build around the margins. It's a lot easier. Like I, I don't know. I don't think that Simmons or Embiid is getting traded anytime soon. Um, I think that you know you again, you don't foreclose, you don't close the door before it's, you, 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 you kind of look and see. So if the phone rings and someone makes a, starts a conversation with the kind of offer that he might consider, 
I think he, I, I don't think he hangs up the phone. I think for the last, you know, last five years in Houston, like if someone had called about James Harden, the phone was getting slammed down. Uh, I don't think that it'll start quite that way in Philly, but I, I, at this point, I think that trading either guy would be a little on the, the trading at, at low ebb of value standpoint. So that's more why I think it's unlikely either will be moved rather than, um, you know, a situation where, well, we've got these two stars. And so let's, let's ride it till the wheels fall off. Ben, what do you want him to do? I'm not, I'm not a huge proponent of trading. I think Seth hit it on the head in terms of where the value point is right now. I mean, just speaking from an economic standpoint, like selling when the team had just, you know, essentially Ben misses the playoffs and it isn't part of the bubble conversation. Joel has his own issues, but ultimately right now, I still think Joel, uh, and I agree with Seth's tier of his replacement within the tiers on his piece. And Joel's still a, a top level player, not maybe one A or one B, but he's in that two group. Um, and so essentially finding whatever pieces that you think are going to make or, you know, augment the value of the other one likely won't come by trading one of the other. And so I know that kind of sounds a little, you know, circular, but I'm not a fan of trading either. I also would, from an actual, like taking all the NBA objectivity thought cap off, like as a fan, it would, it would suck to watch either of them flourish anywhere else when you really haven't necessarily put the right tools aside from essentially one or in season and a half around them. And they did have, you know, the NBA's best uh, five man offensive lineup. And I think like third best defensive at one point with, with JJ Redick on the fucking court too, at the same time, right. JJ helping the offense and pulling away from the defense. And so it's like putting any type of spacing shot, making anybody who can dribble, like the Sixers essentially went with the most one dimensional supporting cast possible last year. It failed. Um, They spent a lot of money on assets that didn't help, make either of their two best players better. And I think it would be foolish to not have more, at least try to do the right thing from a player personnel standpoint around them to then understand what their values are. Both those values could go way up and they still might be tradable uh, in the grand scheme of things, but you need to be able to put, you know, a ball handling guard who can also pass. Uh, You know, we, we have, Ben is a good passer and a decent ball handler, not a, a plus ball handler, I don't think, but he can't shoot. Right. And so the spacing will never work there putting any pieces around the two that make them both better increases their value and ultimately will increase the team's chances of being good. Um, and a better team making a trade is of a more position of value as well, I think, uh, than a team that it's, you know, 42 wins again and, uh, and scraping to become relevant in the Eastern conference. So I don't want to see them traded as a fan or as someone objectively looking at the roster and, and, and the way that they're comprised currently. So, so, so Seth, we think about, presidential elections it's like what do you do in the first hundred days like you need to have like sort of a first hundred days agenda uh i am not bringing up presidential elections for any reason other than uh no i'm just kidding uh but i don't know whatever what, the, there's a gm version of that or a president of basketball operations version of that that's probably less than 100 days i don't know is it like the first 10 days the first 50 days whatever that time frame is if you're Daryl Morey and you're concocting like this is what my agenda is going to be for this first X number of days. What do, what do you think is on is how do you how what is that list? What, what would it be for you? So this is this especially given how compressed this offseason is going to be. Um, it, this is one of the more difficult points, uh, especially getting hired late kind of in the day. 
Um, I want to say late in the process, but I've already used that word too many times. Um, Cause there's really two tracks you need to operate under. One is okay. What we need to, we need to put next year's team on the floor. We also need to organ. And this is the part that gets really um, under discussed, both from a coaching and a, a general manager standpoint is like the, the public stuff you see on the floor or the moves you see in transactions are the tip of the iceberg. And, and I use that word, you know, uh, literally in that, you know, you see 10% of it is above the waterline, 90% of it you don't actually see. Um, and getting all of that in order to allow yourself to be able to do the analysis, to make the good decisions, to be able to have the support system in place, to be able to have the, you know, the, whether it, it, it's, it's medical, whether it's, 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 uh, you know, um, sports science, whether it's, it's nutrition, it's, it's uh, not feeding guys with, with tree nut allergies, peanuts. Like, I don't know if that's been a problem. It was sesame. It was sesame. Sorry. 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 Thank you. Um, (laughs) For those um, who don't know, he's talking about Zaire Smith. Correct. Sixers almost killed him. Loved in the draft, and I, and and I take a complete mulligan on because of you know broke his foot and then like now almost died of anaphylactic shock. So that's you know um, neither here nor there. Um, so, but getting all those things right, getting you know your 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 player development piece in piece, and especially frankly with a coach like Doc Rivers, that becoming an organizational thing rather than a coaching thing or a coaching staff thing is probably. Uh, somewhat of a priority since that's not an area where Doc has ever really been renowned for being good um, and has actually perhaps been actively bad. Um, so, but you have to do, you have to do all of that in parallel. And so it's, there's a lot going on. Um, and so in terms of prioritization, um, it's a fire hose for him right now. Um, I would be surprised if some of the stuff that they've done over the last week or 10 days has not been done advisedly um, how those things kind of work. So uh, there may have been like ideas whispered that have led to certain, certain things. So you're basically um, saying that he has been like, even though he hasn't officially taken the job, he's like conveyed some things he's wanted and those have been done. Is that what I, you're saying? I, I think, I, I, I think that that's a, that's a decent possibility. Yeah. Yes. Right. Like I, I don't have any, I don't have any information on that, but just in terms of, you see it a lot where like that that's a strange move. And then oh okay, the guy got hired. Now I see now that makes sense why, why they did the thing first. Yeah, I mean if if the reporting coming out is all accurate, then these conversations started shortly thereafter his departure from Houston, and so some of these moves might. I'm sure, you're I'm right, sure it was after. Sense. I'm sure no. it was. It, it, it never, they had never talked before. I'm absolutely right. positive. It's, it's also just like how they agree to contracts in one minute uh, when the moratorium yeah. ends. Uh, that's exactly how it works. Um, I mean, the other complicated factor about this and. Are you suggesting tampering, uh, Mike? Because that's not the way okay. the NBA works, okay? <laughs> the, the other thing that's like weird, fascinating about this to me is that like, and maybe this was just lip service, but it sure seemed like Elton Brand was talking like he was the guy in charge. And now suddenly he's not the guy in charge. So like if from a perspective of like kind of building out your sort of your infrastructure, like Seth was talking about like that, that seems to me like a very challenging situation to manage. 
if you're Daryl Morey and if you're Alton Brand. I mean, maybe like it just was. Maybe it's already been managed. Maybe like all this stuff about you know Brand wanting to bring in basketball people and you know this is my show now. Maybe that was all just sort of tough talk for the public. But like from the outside looking in, like that seems to be like that's going to be a fundamental challenge for Morey right now. Like what what is his working relationship like with Alton Brand? I mean, that's that that's kind of remains to be seen. I I will say that that um, if there is a situation where that kind of thing can work, I mean, the fact that, you know, I think Elton has has kind of said this offseason that that he wasn't ready for the job when he got the job. And he's you know, he's he's been an NBA exec for two and a bit years now, maybe three years. So it's um it's not like you are you're you're hiring someone over you know a, a long tenured, you know well established. You know there is there there are some. It seems like you can probably sell it at, from a developmental standpoint. Um, here, in this situation, than you could in most, just because of the weird ways in which, like you know, the Colangelo thing, which led to Brand's elevation, and um, and and so. Um, but yeah, that, that, I mean, that's, that, that is a dynamic. It's, it, it's true. And it's a, it's an odd dynamic and one that hasn't always worked, but I, I do have to feel that it was one that was worked out as part of the, the negotiations for him to come on board. You, you were in Milwaukee when there was that GM search, right? You were still working for the team or am I, do I have my timeline? Off? That was, that was my first off season with the team. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to use divulge. You don't have to divulge too many inside secrets, but I think it seems like some of the stuff you're talking about with building out, like sort of the infrastructure, is in part based on some of that experience you had in that first off season and some of the challenges that Milwaukee had. Is that fair to say? Um, I think the only thing I'll say about that is for the people working in the org, the uncertainty of who the boss is going to be sucks. <laughs> Just like yeah, yeah, like that's you know, I mean, both in terms of of you know. Will I have a job tomorrow? Uh, and but also just like who who are we taking direction from? What are we doing? Like the draft is soon, and and who's running the draft room? Like just like the the day to day stuff like that. So that's um, yeah. But I mean, I think you that that's that is that is somewhat based on 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 that the experience of a change of regime there. But it's it's you know it's it's you see it when when coaching staffs turn over also it's it's all the 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 little stuff that's that has to get done kind of beneath the surface that um you you have a better understanding of when you're actually you know inside and seeing all the moving pieces that there are. Um yeah. and, and that and that's why I think as you know it a mistake that often gets made is a new head decision maker comes in and clears everybody out. And then you just completely, you know, remove any sort of, you know, organizational knowledge, any sort of process you had in place for player, player evaluation, any understanding of just where stuff is in terms of your, you know, your, your, your scouting databases, you know, you've, you've compiled on players who've, you know, been in the league for a while, you've compiled, you know, not just, you know, on-court reports, but you've compiled, you know, character and, and background reports on these guys starting really from when they're 16, 17 years old. And while all that stuff still exists, like if you just, oh, new guy, fire everybody, um, not knowing where that stuff really is and how to navigate it, that just sets you back so far. Um, and so figuring out what to keep and what to change 
is is you know a really kind of hard balance to strike. Yeah, and, and I mean, and then add in the layer of the volatility of of the year we're living in, right? The the lack of in person scouting necessarily right. on on some players, both I mean, domestically the, the and nationally. Of- not just that, but the lack of in-person meeting with the team. Totally. With totally. like, like, like your, 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 you know, your front office team. Um, I think that, you know, in terms of the, the kind of the anxiety that I was discussing, like not getting to meet the new boss, except over zoom is, you know, that I, <laughs> Seb, I feel you, man. I, yeah. as I would, I quick aside, I almost was a part of your athletic team. I had an offer on the table to join the, uh, to kind of run the podcast revenue side of the athletic on March 12th or 13th, that offer came in. So uh, <laughs> like the idea, the idea of joining a new, you know, new company. And I've been at Vox for like eight years. Uh, and I run the, the podcast uh, sales team, you know, for Vox here. And like, I, uh, I wanted to do that, but I also didn't want to jump into a new, you know, organization yeah. having only known everyone via Zoom and so on a very micro level. I think that's extremely important. You're right; it's, it's relationship building is is not natural, uh, so in, in this sphere. Well, um, we we got to stop this part of the conversation before I say something I regret because <laughs> um, yeah. it's like so similar. But anyway, yeah, I mean, by the way, real quick, a uh, bit of breaking news that just crossed the timeline. The Sixers mm. have hired Dan Burke, the longtime Indiana Pacers defensive assistant, to join nice. their staff. That is a pretty big hire. Burke has been in Indiana for a long time. Uh, well, and the Pacers gave the Sixers fits last year defensively, ironically. So yeah. also interesting yeah. with who who was the name of the the guy they hired from the Pacers right before Maury uh, oh, yeah. in the front office. What's uh, his name? Uh, Peter Dinwiddie. Yeah, yep. interesting. Yep. Um, I think that's about. I mean, do you guys have any other final thoughts on the Sixers and Maury before uh, we take a quick break and move on to tiers and rankings? I, I, I my my guess is that there will be plenty of talk about with the Sixers for for days, weeks, months, and years to come. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'll, I'll leave it at this. The Sixers are probably the least accomplished, most talked about team I can I can think of in any sport. We've done nothing to deserve the amount of airtime aside from acquisitions, bad signings, and then ultimately a catchy phrase Wait, like what the about, process. What about, so, the, what about the Lakers mm-hmm. for the last seven years before this one? I mean, well, there was a time before the last seven years where they were <laughs> winning championships. This is like the Sixers haven't won a title since 1983 or, and they've been or like one prior the, in 2000. So it's like, you know, this is not a franchise deserving of all the, the airwaves that they get, good or bad. And so I think it's it's quite ironic that, again, here we are with uh, the talk of the town being an analytics based, uh, you know, director of personnel or, or president of operations. We've essentially created the flat circle uh, that Hinky would be proud of right now. Now we just need one of those 13-page resignation letters. Uh, All right, we're going to take a quick break. Then I want to talk about Seth's Tears Project for The Athletic. Uh, This is the Limited Upside Podcast. Good news if you're disappointed like me that the NBA season is over. Or at least it's good news for people who, unlike me, love this sport, which appears to be the majority of this country. The wait's finally over. Football is back, for now at least but probably for a while. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. 
You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. There will be a winner for the NFC East. I promise. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, B L U E W I R E. All one word. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. The Limited Upside Podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. And right now, Indeed is offering limited upside listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job posts. That means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Welcome back, Limit Upside Podcast. I've got Ben Epstein here. Special guest, Seth Partner, uh, now of The Athletic, formerly of the Milwaukee Bucks. And Seth, you have just completed a very long... And how many months in the making was this project? Um, I think I first started working on it in January, and uh, things... It, it's kind of between starting... Uh, out when with the death of Kobe Bryant and then into the shutdown and sort of kind of got put on the back burner and then uh, re kind of restarted it um, right around when the playoffs were starting uh, to kind of uh, um, come up with first the rankings and then the the well, the, the tierings. See, I've, I've so many people have called them rankings. I'm even doing it now, even See, though I like you hate rankings. Yeah, it, I love that. I think it's very interesting that that's happened because I mean I'm, I've listened to you talk about this this project. This is basically you have tiered off, I guess, the top what you believe to be the top 125 players in the NBA. But you instead of ranking them one to 125, you basically put them in five greater tiers, and then within each tier has sort of separated them out into sub tiers. With the over- underlying message being that like it's functionally kind of irrelevant to rank one to 125. Um, it's much more relevant and much more instructive to do it this way. Um, and it's just, this is music to my ears. I mean, we've talked about this before off air about the problem with rankings. Um, but I, I guess to start this off, like where the fact, the very fact that you're talking about them as rankings, like were you worried at any point when doing this project that like this would become a co-opted rankings and kind of defeat the whole purpose of what you're trying to do? Like, was did that enter your mind at all? Uh, and how did you try to? Overcome uh, no, that's the, the the only reason I agreed to do it was because I was assured that it would not be rankings. <laughs> um, 
because I, I mean, in, in, to get into some of the reasons why of all there's 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 kind of the limitations of of what we know about players because everything they do and i'm coming at this from you know a, a metrics analytics standpoint is everything they they do on the court is is beholden to the context in which they're operating there are maybe as as few as one players in the league who creates a context and that's on his own and that's lebron so basically almost every other player in the league, everything they do from a measurable production standpoint, and even to some degree LeBron, is a function of the context in which they're playing. And so that's kind of from a measurement error, like saying, I definitely think this guy is better than that guy. That's fraught. And then, you know, there's so many cases where guys are pretty close. It's like, well, who would you rather have between, uh, you know, who would you, would you rather have, have Damian Lillard or Jimmy Butler? Well, who else you got? And right. so that's that's basically the 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 start point of it. There is like guys who are pretty close, I think, in overall ability, impact, whatever. And then which guy is going to be better for a team matters much more about everything else about that team. And so I thought that that leveling guys that way was far more uh, a far better representation of where the league is, as well as um, kind of a better representation of the kind of decisions you actually have to make when you're building a team because like ordinal rankings of players matters exactly once in the NBA year. And that's the NBA draft. So that uh, to me, then that begs the question, why even tear them off at all? Why not? Why isn't that step are all also a step too far? Like what, why is, what is the functional value of tiers? I do think it, it like having a snapshot of groups, so okay, there's it is gets a little bit reductive. Like you need a superstar to win a title. Um, by and large, true. So who are the superstars? Um, part of this project came from some you know empiricism about like who actually counts as being at that level. Um, and so you know you you ask for well he's a top five player. Okay, how many how many guys get thrown in the top five player discussion? If we put everyone in who people thought was a top five player, we'd have twelve, and that's obviously not right. Um, so now, like in the in the like colloquially top five players, maybe there's seven, maybe there's three, but the guys at that level at any given time. Um, so so having that separated and the next group down separated because I think those levels uh, have kind of a from just a talent standpoint have some kind of clear delineations on how much they impact, you know, the ultimate goal, which is winning a title. And so trying to, you know, put guys at their rough level of how much they do towards that goal uh, was, was the, the purpose of kind of the tiers. And then within the tier, it's like, you know, on a, on a all 30 standpoint, you're maybe somewhat indifferent between these two players, but in a, in a specific situation, you could easily have a pretty strong preference for one of, over the other. Seth, I, I mean, I don't want to go through every single one of these tiers. I'm actually curious because I did get to dive into this. I started it yesterday when Mike uh, shot it over to me and, and prep for this. And then I think I finished it last night after a couple hours of, of legit, like I took notes to make sure that I wasn't forgetting exactly the questions I wanted to ask. And the first one that came to mind, because we actually had this, uh, we had this conversation with uh, Mike, what was Ben's last name on our, our last ben, podcast? Ben Taylor, who friend of ben both Taylor, of ours. Yes. Friend of Correct. both of ours. Thinking basketball. And, and essentially I asked him, you know, who were the toughest 
players to find like to, to tier here in his case it's a direct ranking in your case it's a tier what players and maybe two or three did you have the most trouble identifying their tier um for kind of where they fit in in comparison to the other players in their tiers not necessarily uh you know I, look i struggled to put devin booker in you know a two or three or whatever but because of where he is as an age bracket compared to maybe the other players and success within their teams uh of the players in their tiers any players stick out for being the most difficult for you uh kevin durant jamal murray hmm. i think are the two that are 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 were the hardest i think please um, elaborate yeah, yeah I was um, say, it must be for very different reasons obviously yeah no yeah. i mean yeah. like like kd it's like okay you know at at the full height of his powers he you know i kind of i delineated and said that you know if there's a one a tier one a plus it's kind of just lebron right now maybe you squeeze Kawhi in there um KD at the height of his powers is in that also. KD has also suffered the most like long-term debilitating, reasonably common injury that NBA players suffer. Um, so we have to expect some like degradation of ability. How much? Like there's some cushion from from where he was to still being a top top player, but there's also like the floor is far lower than that. So I just, I kind of put him where I put him as sort of a shrug and say, I don't know, this is kind of where the Nets need him to be. Uh, and also this lets me talk about him at the start of an article rather than the end of an article, because it's going to be, it's, I, I, I it's very important to talk about. V- very important, by the way, very <laughs> underrated. That, important. that is a true editor's move right there. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm impressed. Uh, and then, and then Jamal Murray is, is, you know, what to, he's been a guy who I thought that, you know, the Nuggets themselves and Denver fans had gotten a little ahead of themselves talking about how good he is. And then you look at his play, you know, in, in the postseason, and then what to make of that. Um, because he was like absolutely fabulous in the postseason, And, you know, obviously based on his postseason play, he's a, he's a, tier two player but i don't think that's all real so how much do you scale it back based on you know sample size and recency and just the general weirdness of the bubble environment so figuring out where to kind of place him in i i was i was pretty sure he was in kind of the the tier three group which is um you know from memory about the 20th to 40th top players in the league he's somewhere in that group but like you know is he more in the towards the top 25 end or more towards like the late 30s was sort of uh the one of the harder kind of things to figure out yeah, murray's a tough one murray's a real because because murray in some ways so there there are three types of players that i have a lot of trouble like classifying and I'd be curious, like, kind of how you think of these players. One was the Murray type of player where I, I'm going to put it this way. His reputation is buoyed by what may or may not be a hot streak under interesting conditions. And that will have an effect on how his he is viewed and defended. But we don't know what that is. And we don't know. How, quote unquote, I hate the term real because, like, something is real if you think it's real, ultimately. Like, your reputation is reality. But, like, that type of player is very hard for me to get a handle on. I think a little bit of Kyrie Irving in the similar way where it's, like, the people who 
your peer, the people in the league, the players probably have a higher opinion of Kyrie Irving than, I don't know, more dispassionate metrics. So how do you balance those two things? And Murray's a really good example because his reputation is going to skyrocket because he did it in a very visible moment, in a visible way. What does that actually mean for one for one? It's a really tricky question. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. And it was it was basically trying to pick out what parts of it were a hot streak that was unlikely to continue and what was a real impact in his game. And I thought the the thing that kind of convinced me ultimately to put him in three A is first of all, like you know, twenty nineteen games is a is a is a reasonably like not a robust sample size, but it's not a tiny one. Um, but also, I thought that the the fact that like he he talked about before the bubble that he had used the time off to kind of uh, really work add strength add body strength and I think in especially in a playoff setting that's a very underrated trait um, and I think that that was something that was uh, both visible from kind of a, a more traditional eye test standpoint but also in kind of some of the numbers in terms of of his ability to get to and finish at the rim in the postseason and I thought that that represented. Like even if the shooting and especially the pull-up shooting regresses somewhat, that is a a real improvement in his game that that up uh, ups his kind of level as a as a primary shot creator. Uh, I don't know substantially, but certain uh, you know at at least you know a step or two. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, I the other. I'll talk about the other two types of players that I have trouble ranking in a second because they kind of are inverse to each other. But I don't know if Ben, you want to get to any other questions on your list that you prepared? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the only other question was like movers and shakers, essentially. Like if you if you could look into the future and and say, look, uh, three four years from now, these are the couple names that I imagine would be, you know, fighting up into your call it one A one B tier because the 1a 1b tier right now honestly if we're looking at it almost all of those players uh if we're talking about durant steph Giannis, harden Kawhi, and lebron likely would have been the same people five years ago too uh or four years ago maybe not Giannis, but maybe you not know why either i mean Kawhi is probably a little eh, more recent i mean I, a little more recent, but ultimately was of a value to winning a championship. Probably yeah. not far from the top of that. Uh, I, I guess. So I, I guess he probably. Under, I did pick him to win MVP in 2017, so I don't know what I'm saying. Sure. Okay. So yeah, that's yeah. pretty. Okay. Yeah, so the point okay. is, like, you know, five years from now, which players it might be in your two or three or even four? Do you you know see making an outside run at your top tier? Um, I mean, the obvious one is Luca. Um, who's, you know, in his second year was kind of kind of right there and was held out of the top tier mostly because of, of you know, not having kind of the track record of doing it over multiple years because he's only been around for two years. <laughs> um, <do> I think <laughs> Jason Jason Tatum is a guy who, who has like the, especially if his playmaking skills continue to improve, uh, he's a guy who could who could jump up. Um a guy who I'm pretty high on uh, had really a under discussed uh, spectacular rookie years, John Morant. Um, now that's, that's, that's sort of based on, you know, two things. One's kind of staying healthy, um, which given his, you know, body frame and style of play is an open question. Uh, and also like his, his jump shot improving. I think that um, 
honestly the former to me than the latter since he's someone who is consistently shown pretty reasonable touch um so i think he can become a i i wouldn't bet against him becoming at least a credible three-point shooter um so those are um in you know uh zion williamson learns how to play defense at all <laughs> um so those are i mean those, i think those are those are kind of the obvious ones sure um any any ones that might not AD be is a, a, uh, and I mean, Anthony Davis is a, is a is an interesting one just because, again, the reason he's I didn't have him top tier is I think that at that top level, like the ability to to create high value shots for yourself and others is basically a make or break skill. Uh, and prior to the postseason, he is does not have any sort of track record of doing either. Uh, either, you know, getting his own shot or creating for his teammates at any real level. Um, he's been, you know perhaps the best finisher. Yeah. Like, like all, all areas of the court finisher in, in the league for, you know, certainly was last year. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a really awesome second best player profile without necessarily being the ideal best player profile. And ultimately that leads to that, that kind of eye in there, the pie in the sky here, which is the relationship to winning a title, right? It's, it's like, yeah, your tiers kind of do break out the proper recipe for yeah. a successful team when you see. Yeah, like I mean, we we we've seen like we've seen Anthony Davis be the best player on his on his team, and you know there was those rosters in New Orleans were never perfect, but they kind of topped out at pretty good at okay, and you know, and then you compare like since his like second year in the league, like has there been a LeBron team that was ever just pretty good? And that's that's sort of the differentiation, and 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 James Harden as well. Like a James Harden team is while he's in his prime, is never going to just be pretty good. Yep, yep. This, the know? floor that they provide, you know, into themselves. Yep. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah. And then I guess like, and Prada, you you said something the other day, and we were kind of lining up this podcast. What did you say that if you could bake down your singular ethos about oh, tiering or ranking or, or basketball? Well, what, I, I don't want to steal the words. You you said it yourself, but I don't know what you're what, talking what exactly about. Exactly, <laughs> um, <laughs> you said something to the effect of like you and Seth see pretty eye to eye. And, oh yeah, on your yeah. ethos. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Seth pretty well explained it in his tiering system. I mean, just right. the the objection I generally have to rankings is gen- is twofold. I think Seth can speak a little more to one of these than the other. One is um, that well, it's what Seth said better than anyone. One is the thing you always say: it's like it, it, it obscures more than it actually illuminates. Like I very much believe that. The other thing that like I have trouble with certainly ranking at like the very top tier is that from a team building standpoint, right? If you're the, if you're Daryl Moore, if you were if you're Seth and you're still working in the league. I make this like analogy to like a like it's not like a grocery store aisle where you can like pick out your superstar, right? <laughs> like you can't be like, uh, you know, I don't really like that Jimmy Butler doesn't shoot threes. I'd rather have I'd rather have uh, LeBron <laughs> or Kevin Durant. Like it just doesn't work. That's like, nice. <laughs> like it doesn't work like that. You don't get yeah. to, you don't really get to choose your superstar. So functionally, ranking at the very certainly at the very top is irrelevant. Like people don't people who actually make the decisions can't think that way in my mind. That's why I, that's one other reason I don't like rankings, but maybe I'm wrong about, maybe I'm like overly critical or wrong about like sort of how that is thought about. 
No, I think that that's absolutely right. The more important thing there is, is this is this guy like a a a core MVP level superstar or is he just an all star? You know, that's and that's a meaningful distinction. And I think that the kind of a spot where teams in the past have gotten themselves in trouble is treating the latter like the former. Like, right. you know, but um, even what, then, one of the recent examples. Oh, sorry. Well, like even then, like, let's say you believe like let, let's use the Chicago Bulls as like a really good test study. They made an evaluation that Jimmy Butler was just an all star. Right. Years ago. And they he wasn't the guy. So they traded him. Have they found anyone anywhere close to Jimmy Butler? Like, you don't just get to bring in the guy then. <laughs> and, like, you have seasons to play and and fan, well, not fans to fill now, but, like, games to play and, like, fan bases to satiate. And, like, you can't just sort of – I mean, this was the primary criticism of Hinky, right? You don't just, like, sort of play, wait around for perfect superstar to fall into your lap ball. You have to play basketball. And so if you're the Chicago Bulls, like – and your thought process is Jimmy Butler isn't the guy. Well, he was a pretty damn good guy, and it's very hard to find. Like, how you're not just going to replace Jimmy Butler with another superstar. So functionally, right. I just think I think we like get into these theoretical discussions that are just not practical sometimes. I, I think a better example of that right now is the Nuggets. Like, okay, is Nikola Jokic an MVP level superstar? No. Do you have any means possible of acquiring an MVP level superstar? No. Okay, so what do we do? What do we need to do to build a championship level team around Nikola Jokic? Like that's the decision you have to make. But but recognizing that okay, we don't have one of those guys, so we need to we need to hit some other areas a little bit better than we have less margin of error because of that. But it's still possible. We have a guy who's good enough if we do everything else right. Right. The, the the luxury that those really top guys do is you can is you can have a mulligan or two because they're that good. Right. And, and, then, so for the, and then the other thing, too, is that it, it, this is what the Miami Heat are banking on, is that it's better to have that guy to then get the better guy than it is to not have that guy. Like they had they, they have Jimmy Butler and it, they are counting on Jimmy Butler helping to recruit someone better than Jimmy Butler. So there's also that element of it. You may as well keep the guy. Um, I did want to touch on uh, – actually, the fact that you brought up Harden and Anthony Davis is a really – I would say sort of the higher-end version of this sort of dilemma that I always have with ranking players. I would say the lower-end version would be like the Joel Embiid's and Rudy Gobert's, who I believe you had Gobert in pretty high up in your second tier or 2A tier or whatever – a tier that was pretty. I, I don't remember exactly. It was it, it was in the top twenty. I don't remember it was what two C, two C. Yeah, um, and you had Joel Embiid. I think at number nine. And then what I would call those types of players are like the we've maxed out the based on the way the league is right now, which may or may not change, but it's probably going to be fixed next year. There is a ceiling to that type of player for whatever reason, but that player has sort of maxed out uh, what that is. And again, Anthony Davis is kind of the high end version because of the can't create your shot thing. How do I evaluate that guy compared to what I would call again, the Harden is like the highest end version of this, but you go down the list and it's like Brandon Ingram, DeMar DeRozan, uh, and even lower down someone like Lou Williams, where it's like their player type. If you can max it all out, you get the best player in the league. But if you don't, you get a player who needs to, have the ball a lot like the best player in the league, but is not the best player in the league or anywhere close. And then he's not as effective. And so how do you, 
I just find it really difficult to like delineate which of the two types is more valuable. And then, then you get into the problem of like, well, what if the league has changed and suddenly the Embiid and Gobert types are now more valuable again? This is why like I find the exercise to be really draining. I don't know what you think about that that sort of challenge. Like, who is better, Anthony Davis or James Harden? It kind of depends on if you're trying to build a base or you're trying to make one plus one equal more than two, which is a phrase I use a lot. No, I, I think that, that that's, those are the questions that now, obviously, like if you say you, you have LeBron James and you have your pick up between Anthony Davis and James Harden as the second guy, you probably pick a D, but you're super happy to have to make that choice anyway. So you, you don't say no to either. Um, from the standpoint of, you know, those kind of middle tier shot creators, I think the most overvalued players are the kind of the, are the inefficient and moderately efficient high volume shot creators, uh, which makes sense because it, it like intellectually, it makes sense because the most valuable players, as you said, are the ones who can do it at a high volume and high efficiency, but it, it's a, it's a, kind of as you get better at actually completing the play, the value increases exponentially almost. So, um, it, you know, you it, it's, it's pretty, you can have too much average shot creation pretty easily. You can never have too much elite shot creation. I think that's well said. I also, I wonder too, as I look at this list, Mike just hit on sort of the, the snapshot, if you will, the, the, the relationship to the bubble and how it made us value. And you did too, with uh, your Jamal Murray observations there. I'm wondering if there's anyone else uh, outside of the bigs that may have been, might've been minimized by the style of play and the overall shot making in, in the bubble. Any other players whose value, as you did this, you said you started in January and you published it this week or whatever it is. So I'm wondering if there's any other players whose value swung drastically based upon their performance, maybe multiple tiers even in your rankings uh, in the bubble. Um, Ultimately, you did kind of give us a little preview as to the amount of value you put on 19 games. But I'm wondering if there were any any other players where those 19 games were specifically impactful. Um, I mean, I, there's a sort of at the bottom end, a guy like Duncan Robinson proving he can, he can play in the playoffs like that gets him on the list sort of, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, before, before the bubble in the playoffs, you, you, you didn't know if he's a guy who is, you know, is he, is he a highly valuable specialist or is he a place kicker? Sure. Uh, and you know, um, and he, he, I think he answered basically any question you could have about that. Um, and then there's obviously, you know, his teammate, Tyler Hero, who kind of uh, Ben Taylor has talked about this a lot, is he basically had his rookie, off, his second, his rookie offseason going into his second year improvements. He had that midseason and that, you know, that jump for him kind of kind of snuck him in at the back of the list, too. Um mm-hmm. You know, guys who maybe got hurt a little bit. I mean, you know, uh, Paul George probably bumped himself down a tier. Uh, Pascal Siaka maybe a little, though I think that we overreacted to him not being able to do the things we already knew he wasn't able to do. Yeah, um, yeah. I agree with that. Uh, uh, Chris Paul still being, like, really damn good, probably. 
shored him up in the in kind of the 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 second tier. I don't know if it moved him there, but it kept him there. Yeah, he's fantastic. I, I love Chris Paul's. I, I think it's partially because the way he legitimately, like the way he just walks. Like I think there's a way that he. <laughs> this sounds so stupid, but I, I like Chris Paul because he walks uh, in a fun. No, in a the, cool the way that yeah, the way that he <laughs> the way that he kind of like stomps around. We've all seen that like older guy who you've played hoops with at the Y or wherever it may be, or on whatever public court, and they walk the same way, and you're like, fuck, that guy probably played D one ball back in the day, and he's been running this court for the last twenty years, and that's the way Chris Paul is taken to the NBA at this point. It's just like, let me just take charge and follow my lead. Yeah, that was the the, the gym I used to play at in Minneapolis uh, right after college. That that guy was the the guy's name was the Rev, and that was <laughs> and he was totally like similar body type, and and, and totally and would, would like was the guy who would stomp around, tell everyone where to go, call the score out on every play, and just his team seemed to be on the court for three or four games in a row every day. That's right. It's exactly right. It's that is the best way I think about Chris Paul's game, and why I like him so much more now is because he's aged into that exact caricature. It's it's perfect. Yeah, Chris Paul is actually a funny player in another respect, which is like something I think about probably a lot more than both of you is like the game itself has changed so drastically over the last five years, thanks in large part to the three-point revolution that, you know, I think a lot more about like our certain types of players, their skill sets becoming more or less valuable as the game continues to evolve. And I think that evolution is happening probably much faster than you guys do, but like Chris Paul is an example of a player who should not, whose player type is evolving the opposite direction, but he's still as good as ever. And those are the types of players that I think I tend to miss a lot on are the ones that are, you know, for lack of a better word, like not evolving with the time, not the type of archetype of the times. And, but then like that archetype can change so quickly. And, you know, that's what another reason why I find the, the exercise to be very challenging is that, you know, someone like Embiid is actually a really good example. Like, I think you mentioned what Stan Van Gundy had said about Embiid. And, like, I, I actually thought Embiid was a little overranked um, because I just felt part of me in my head is thinking, like, is that type of player really able to make the same impact in a league that seems to be going away from them? But I may be overrating that factor. I mean, the thing you'd say about Embiid is they were, like, the three best um you know, uh, synergy data isn't the end all be all, but it's it, it in in this case, I think it's a useful signpost in that the three most efficient kind of individual play types this year, and they were all right around the same same spot, were James Harden isolations, Damian Lillard pick and pick and rolls, Joel Embiid post ups, and and that's knowing that he had no spacing around him, and he turns the ball over too much. Right. So, like, you start from there. Yeah, the league's going away from that. But in some ways, if you can find a way to make that work, that almost that almost makes him. Well, you know, he's he's elite at a thing that no one else is built to stop. Right. Because the average version of it isn't really that valuable. the the only The only challenge with that analogy is that you he does not control where he gets the ball entirely and yeah but like you have to give him the ball in that spot and that's right. where the real challenge lies and so but, but we just saw the worst case scenario for that that's and true so judging, yeah. judging him on the on on like the worst case um is is you know you, you do want to push back against that a little bit because they you know especially with simmons out they legitimately didn't have anybody who could who could who could make an entry pass 
Right. And then there's also... Yeah, that was a big issue. Yeah. 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 I mean, but then the question there is like, and this is why I find this so interesting, is like, yeah, okay, so you find, let's say you put five Rajon Rondos around, or like five of the, the five, four people who are the best entry passers ever, like, is that still going to run up against a glass ceiling because of the way the game is going? And then that's also a problem on defense. And but what does it even mean that like where the game is going? Like it just my head spins with this stuff. I just yeah. no, it's the, so I, tough. I, I think, I, no, I think it's I think it's unlikely that that you know a, that player type is is in this environment is actually like a you know a a that inner circle superstar. But that doesn't that doesn't mean you know okay there's a ceiling but the edge of the top ten. Not like, no, oh, he's he's top twenty. He, he maxes out as a top twenty player. You know, I think that you know having the best one or two of that, you know, between him and Jokic, which is kind of becoming. It's interesting. Those two are kind of becoming a little bit the same as uh, Jimmy Butler and Paul George have for a number of years, where they kind of swap spots between who's better, like every year almost, mm-hmm. um, in in kind of the the general consciousness. Oh, but man. oh man, I gotta play. Yeah. I gotta play some Ben Epstein, Jokic clips from Ben Embiid was doing going well and how it was a ridiculous conversation. It was a ridiculous conversation at one point. It's obviously not anymore. Things have changed, but at like three years ago, yeah, it was it was a different conversation. Was that's it? Just, that, I don't know. Yeah, it was. I mean, it just it was. It's and that's I think objectively speaking, Embiid was in a much higher level three years ago. Jokic has taken some incredible steps forward on both sides of the ball, but also the game is changing in a place where and the Nuggets as a a roster composition have built a team that he can really flourish in, and Embiid's roster has gone further and further away from helping his skill set. So these things all matter. Um, I, I and I like Jokic a lot. You know, I've taken a huge, you know, over the uh, last couple on. years, I've don't become a huge this. fan of his. Don't I, it's impossible not to. Don't I, do I don't this. want Mike I to have, start I have in the city re- where it doesn't exist. I have the receipts. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, I, you know, and uh, and so I'm a big fan of uh, of both guys, and uh, I do. I like the comp the comp to uh, to Butler and uh, and Paul George. Um, I think the mentality difference between Butler and George is is as fascinating as the physical differences between Jokic and and Embiid, um, and that's probably a whole different conversation. Um, well, I also, so you, you okay, yeah. Yeah. hold on, yeah, no. So this is this is something that that there's um, there there is something that 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 I think people tend to do, which is overvalue visible and like Jimmy Butler is very much a visible effort guy. And well, Paul George, that. because no, but ahead, no, sorry, but you, yeah. but you were talking about when you're talking about mentality, like like people kind of because uh, Paul George is sort of uh, his his he's agile and languid and and everything looks easy for him. People impute sort of a lack of hard work there, which I'm not sure is totally fair. But because like Jimmy Butler is is chew glass guy, like it it so. Um, anyway, oh, that's that's not. I mean, look, I I said that. I my background as I you know I watched Paul George doing a whole entire off season of his career uh, at one point. So like I uh, up close and personal. So I'm fully aware of the work ethic that goes into to both of of their games. And I actually think that Jimmy Butler being so. Uh, everyone look, look at my work ethic is something that I, I take away uh, in a lot of regards. Like I know how hard almost every NBA player works. And I think some of the guys who probably put in the most time throughout their 
off seasons are guys like maybe Paul Pierce, whose body does not suggest that they were putting all of the time that they necessarily do. Because I he just had think, to because of that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, absolutely. And because he wanted to make sure that he had, you know, we've, I've talked about Paul Pierce many, many times because he's the person I got to watch from the closest and for the most hours up close and personal. He, you know, he would make sure that he had every no dribble, one dribble, two dribble, three dribble move mm-hmm. from every single part of the court. And that way everything was rehearsed. It was nothing new to him. Skill is athleticism. That's my yeah, central, totally. mo- central belief. I, I completely um, but, agree. No, you're talking more about like sort of the leadership quality of like, I mean, right? Like, sure. What are you exactly you talking Dude, about? Part of it and just ultimately how they, you know, my, my most recent way to compare them is how they both just played. I mean, Paul, Paul might, Paul George still might have a shoulder issue. He might still be nursing or didn't even ever get the opportunity to get to his optimal physical ability this year. And then was put into a spotlight with it again, a situation where maybe it wasn't necessarily the best team to be built for, for his skill set or what he brings to the table, which is a pretty diversified, awesome skill set in his regard. But I, I mean, look, he didn't play well in the playoffs. It's just, it's really hard to not overlook the fact that one guy just had a exemplary playoff run and the other guy didn't. And but that's how, just, how much again, of that is based on the environment though. Like it seems like one was much sure, more suited sure. to dealing with the bubble than the other. Yeah. So, but, lot, no, lot, but it, it is, lot. it is a challenge. And then the other, then there, then you get into the perception is reality sort of element of this, uh, where is there, I mean, let's get too esoteric, but is there really a truth or is it just the truth that everybody believes and that becomes truth and yeah. all that? Um, and and I, I don't think that there's a huge, I don't know if they're going into next year that I would say that Jimmy Butler is a better player, like should be ranked or in a different tier. She's the same tier as Paul George to me. And I don't think that he should be necessarily thought of as someone who's taken a leap to, you know, excel past yeah. him. That's not. Yeah. I mean, to he, me, he's nosed ahead rather than leapt ahead. Yeah, I think that's yeah. fair. And I would say that what is exact, what exact, while it's fun to discuss, there's absolutely no functional point to ranking one ahead of the other. And here yeah. we go again. Um, <laughs> but uh, this has been, this has been fascinating. Real, last thing I wanted to ask Seth is like, kind of like a more a fundamental question. Like if you, what is the one sentence takeaway that you want people to have from this project? Wow. One like, sentence. You're asking me to to, to uh, uh, break thirty thousand <laughs> words down into one sentence. Hey, I, I'm an editor. Uh, That's what I do. You know. Yeah. Like, uh, like you know, this is the same way I put Star Wars memes that like kind of summarize an entire long analysis of film on newsletter posts. Like, I, I the reason I ask is because obviously this is this is something where you were hoping to change the conversation is about rankings as much as you were looking to classify players i assume so i i think the question is relevant like what is what is the thing that you want people to take away that you hope that has the message that you hope you have imparted um can i can i you know a professor of mine always used to say if you wanted to if you want to fight the hypothetical you need to pay more tuition but uh <laughs> can i like can i can i instead of giving you one sentence yeah you did, it doesn't have to be one yeah. sentence fine yeah fine. so 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 the first thing is is uh context is everything um, these differentiations are hard and you need to be really, uh, I don't know what, what, um, uh, parsimonious with awarding, uh, sort of high status. So almost when in doubt, push them down. Mm-hmm. Those are, those are, those are the three sort of, of things that I really, you know, every time I've done this or a related exercise, those are the things that I found to be most, uh, important. I love that mess. That's great. Those are three really, 
Yeah, and, and humility too, I think, in like sort of being, and this is what we've talked about with Ben a lot, humility and being willing to admit the limit of the exercise. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And the exercise is only, is, is answering a specific question. And if you're asking a different question, if you're asking, you know, okay, take it now. I, I, I didn't really care about age or contracts. So you add that back in the list looks completely different. Right. Um, but so this is, this is a, a, a answer to a very specific, you know, framework and set of set of questions and has some applicability, but not total kind of, if you're looking, if you're, you're going in it, if you're at answering a different question. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is amazing how 99% of the arguments that people have anywhere are basically just about like, what question are we actually asking? Literally every single argument can boil down to that. Almost every single argument boils down to that issue. That's why I hate Twitter. Um, that's why you, that's why you hate Twitter, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I hate love, love, hate. You know what? What's like a love hate relationship? Yeah. Every single question, every single argument is just like, no, I'm trying to answer this question. No, you're really trying to answer that question. And it's just around and around we go. Like this reminds me of how we often argue about like sort of the morality of certain fan bases. It's like everybody's just talk- one person like you're all different <laughs> like let's just talk about what we're actually talking about it's the most frustrating thing about modern society and on that note <laughs> yeah, you're, you're not, not to get too esoteric but i'll end this note on what's wrong with society <laughs> and on that note this has been really fun seth partner you can check him out at the athletic uh we'll be back next week this has been the Limited Upside Podcast.